Paul Reese, and I'm the senior pastor here at Charlotte Chapel, and it's a privilege uh, to uh, be here with you today. It was a great joy to hear your stories. Thank you so much. We really praise God for His work in each one of your lives. Why is it that as Christians we experience so many struggles and difficulties? John Owen who was a British pastor and theologian, uh, born in 1616, the year that uh, Shakespeare died. It was four years before the Puritans ever arrived in America. Uh, He was married to a lady called Mary Rook for 31 years. And together they had 11 children. Now, all of them died, including his wife, during John's lifetime. We don't know exactly when each of the children died, but in an average of 31 years, they, 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 they lost a child roughly every three years. So his ministry as a pastor, his lifetime experience was faced with almost constant loss. Now, people often ask, well, you know, how can you say that there's a loving God with all this suffering? And that question becomes even more acute for the Christian. Since putting our trust in the Lord Jesus, have we not become part of God's family? Does, does the Bible not teach that our Heavenly Father knows how to give good gifts? So, how is it that the life of the Christian can be so tough? What's going on as we experience suffering and trouble? Now, it's not an academic question, is it? Here at Charlotte Chapel, we we have uh, people who are experiencing unemployment, stressful jobs, difficult neighbors, chronic pain and illness, cancer, disabilities, uh, grief, difficult uh, marriages, uh, rebellious, unbelieving children, Uh, caring for elderly people, the death of loved ones, stress, finances. All of that is going on in almost every church, but certainly it's going on in this church. What is going on? What are all these troubles about? Now, the Bible has lots of different things to say about this. But I want us to focus on one aspect of what God would want to say to us as we experience such troubles. And so please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, grab a church Bible. You'll find it on page 1213. Because today we start a new series of working through this letter written by James. James uh, chapter 1, page 1213. 213. Let's just pray before we read it. Father God, we thank you that you are a gracious God and you promise to give wisdom to those who ask. And so, Lord, often we are perplexed in our sufferings and trials and we ask that you would give us heavenly wisdom to see these trials in the light of your words. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit that we may hear your voice to our hearts. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother, in humble circumstances, ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This is God's word. Now keep your Bibles open. I'd like you to imagine with me um, this little situation. We don't know for sure if it was exactly like this, but this is how I imagine it. I want you to picture a letter arriving in the place where there are some displaced Christians, a Christian family. They were scattered from Jerusalem because they had become Christians. They were probably Jewish. They put their trust in Jesus, their Messiah. Persecution had hit that mega church that was there in Jerusalem. And literally thousands of people were scattered out all over the place. And this was such a family. And there they are sitting around a breakfast table. And uh, the wife notices that the husband has a scroll in his hand. And she says, well, what have you got there? And he said, well, it looks like it's a letter from our pastor James back in the church back in Jerusalem. And she said, well, how wonderful. Oh, what, what, what does he have to say to us? And he said, well, I, I've, I've only just started reading this. Uh, let me just see. Oh, he says that we should be uh, experiencing joy in all our troubles. Joy in our troubles, says the wife. Come, give that to me. You can't be saying that. We can't be saying that. No, 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 no. I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this. You, you can stand behind me if you want to read it at the same time. Well, that's how I imagine it. James is addressing this short letter that reads to me in lots of ways uh, as, in a sense, a summary of a series of sermons that maybe these scattered Christians had missed since they'd left church. And he put some of his sermons together to write to these Christians uh, dispersed away from their home church. That's what it says in verse 1, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now these people knew what it was 
to experience hard times. And I think that this opening advice of verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, I think that would have been just as unusual to them as it may seem unnatural to us. Consider it pure joy. Pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Trials, they're they're hard. They're difficult. They're painful. They're arduous. They're exhausting. They're soul-sapping. They're wearying. They're not happy experiences. I mean, this can sound uh, unsympathetic, subhuman almost. Uh, I mean, do I have to add to the burden of all my troubles I'm supposed to feel happy about it? What exactly is James teaching here? Now, before answering that, I want to step back for a moment and, and ask the question, well, what, what, is, what is the central purpose? What is the central concern of this letter? Now, I've got a little clue for you. I may have shared this before. If you want to break into a house, normally the, 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 the key uh, is under the front door mat or the back door mat. And this roughly works in Bible study as well as uh, thievery. Um, now, I'm not encouraging that at all. We'll edit it, that out of the sermon. But come with me to the end of the book. We've read the beginning of the book. Let's turn to the end of the book. And I'll read these verses and see what you think is the main concern as he, wants, as he writes to them. He's finishing up his letter. So he wants to make sure he presses the point home. Look at uh, James chapter 5. Verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Look at verse 10. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. What do you think this letter's about? Well, it seems to me that a big goal is that he's writing to encourage them to patiently persevere as they face tough times. He's writing, he knows that they're going through tough times, and he's writing to urge them to patiently endure, persevere, keep going even though things are tough. They, they are experiencing the opposition of the world around them. They, they, they've been persecuted for their faith. That's why they're dispersed. That's why they've had to leave. But along with that, James has a concern not just about the impact of the world around them that seems negative towards them, but he's also concerned about the worldliness that is inside of them. I mean, having been roughed up by the world for being a Christian, having experienced suffering and deprivation, I guess one of the temptations is to look at those around you who are prospering in the world, who have no interest in God, no real concern for uh, things of faith, 
who are prospering and doing well, and you're wondering, well, that looks pretty good. Since I follow Christ, I've just seen a lot of troubles. And there would be great temptations, I would imagine, to envying the ease of those who have no interest in Christ. And in fact, to want to court the favor of the rich, uh, to get the influence of the world that looks so attractive. And I think James has that concern for these Christians in this circumstance. It seems to be a significant pastoral matter in this letter too. So turn back to chapter 1. Because he confronts them that there's a possibility of having a dangerous spiritual condition of being double-minded. So look at chapter 1 and verse 6. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all he does. James has actually invented a new word here uh, in the original language. It, it's literally kind of two souls, this divided uh, man. A, 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 a two souls person, a divided soul perhaps. Now this is a very serious condition. Uh, as it says even there in verse 10, it leads to a very unstable Christian. Someone who's torn between trusting God and then trusting the world that rejects God. He's, he's depicting that the possibility that someone's torn between these two things. Who am I going to trust now? I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust this world that rejects him. And this concern runs through the letter. Uh, chapter 2. It shows itself, this double-mindedness, in showing favoritism to rich people, to wealthy people, while ignoring the poor around them. Just sort of sucking up to those who might benefit you and that you might get some, uh, something positive back. And then you've got the double-mindedness of chapter 2, verse 14. Um, where he says this, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, he's a Christian professor, professing, but has no deeds, can such faith um, save him? So here you've got the double minus of something that they're a Christian, but in practice it makes no difference in their life whatsoever. Some of the testimonies we've heard this today have talked about times in their lives where that's what been the case. Outwardly they look like a Christian professor professing faith, but actually the realities in their practices, that's not what's going on. And that double minus is seen in chapter 3 and verse 9 in the way we use our speech. This double-souled person is revealed by their speech. Look at James 3 verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praising and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. And then on to chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? He asks the question, what, what's causing infighting in the church? And his answer is, it's because of double-mindedness. It's because of this worldliness of heart. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people. 
They see they're two-timing God, these Christians. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Look at verse 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is how serious is the condition of a two-souled person, a divided soul person, of this issue of double-mindedness. And so the question is, is this, is there any cure? Is there any medicine that will take us back to a state of spiritual health and wholeness? And the answer is yes, there's a cure. Back to the original question then this morning. What is going on when our lives start getting filled up with pain and trouble? Well, part of the answer is this. That is the very medicine that God uses to bring wholeness to our souls. It's, it's perhaps not a popular message, it's a tough message to take on board when we're going through trials, but this is what James is teaching. Look back at chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. Notice the inevitability of tough times. He doesn't say, now, if you meet trials, does he? He says, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And that idea of facing trials, in the original language, um, it's, it's, it, that very word is used as Jesus tells the parable of the man on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho who fell in with a band of robbers. And that's the words. This guy wasn't looking for trouble. But trouble just jumped out on him and beat him up, left him robbed and dying, left for dead, really. And on any given day, we might head out into the world uh, and troubles and hardships can just ambush us. And we're left gasping, what is, why, why has this happened to me? And as Christians, one of the answers to that question is found in verse 3. Because we know something. We know something. What is it in verse 3? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Such trials are the means that God uses to test and to strengthen our faith. The Olympics are coming up. Uh, one of the events I'm uh, only fascinated in at the Olympics is the, uh, the heavyweight lifting thing. Um, the snatch and grab, whatever it's called. Um, I don't think women should ever be doing that thing, but I, I watch it when the men do it. And, um, you know, you, you see these men get up there and they are holding these bars with, I mean, ridiculous amounts of weights. This steel bar is bending. It's bending, isn't it? Have you seen that? <laughs> their knees are trembling under the weight of, you know, four or five blokes that they're kind of holding up relatively. To their, to their, it's incredible, isn't it? 
Now, those, those Olympic weightlifters, uh, did they just wake up one Monday morning and go, I know, today, I'm just going to lift a lot of heavy weights. You want to fancy that? You want to be in the Olympics? Try it tomorrow. No, don't. Don't. That's not, you, can't, you can't decide suddenly. It, it happens bit by bit, doesn't it? Yes. Years and years of, of building, incre- lifting increasingly heavier weights until the body, the muscles develop, uh, that, this, that your legs can contain this unbelievable weight that is lifted up. And faith is like that. Faith is a muscle that needs to be stressed to grow. Faith needs to be challenged to grow stronger. And uh, this idea of testing is a word that is also used in the Bible of this idea of removing impurities from silver and gold. If you if you find gold buried in the ground and you dig it up, it's often mixed with other materials. And so to make it a bar of pure gold, you need some very, uh, uh, very hot fire and you need to uh, turn the gold or silver into liquid and let the dust and all the other things, the impurities kind of bubble up to the surface. You scrape that off and you pour it out until you get, you do that several times to get a, a bar of pure gold. Now, this is one of the purposes and one of the functions of suffering and trial in the Christian life. God is at work to strengthen our faith and to purify us. God is at work to make us spiritually mature and whole. Look at verse 4. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That word perfect has a sense of being fully developed, coming into full maturity. And the word complete has that sense of being integrated and whole, single-minded in our loyalty and our service. And this is what James longs to see for his scattered um, congregation that they would come and see that the very tough circumstances that they're in, uh, God's means to make them complete Christians, to make them single-minded Christians, God-devoted Christians. Trials are part of God's grace. It is the medicine to cure our divided souls, to strengthen our faith, and to bring us into spiritual maturity. And so when troubles have jumped on us and we are in our disorientation asking, what, what's going on? Well, here's part of the answer from, from God's word. God is at work in our lives. I, I don't know whether you're here today and you're just feeling so disorientated in your hardships and your struggles and it just does not make sense. In fact, it feels... Like everything's collapsing around you. And I want to tell you from God's word that uh, if you know and love the Lord Jesus, I want to tell you this. God is at work. God is at work in this. He wants to develop the muscles of your faith. He wants you to become a complete Christian who will last until the end, who will persevere until the end. And 
we need to be aware that the Lord Jesus that we're following, this is the very pathway that he was on. Turn back a page to Hebrews chapter 12. One thousand two hundred and ten. Again, the writer of the Hebrews is is concerned that these people are contemplating turning back. They're finding it tough to be a Christian, and this is what he says to them in Hebrews twelve verse one. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all the great saints that he's talked about in Hebrews chapter eleven. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Come back to James chapter 1. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those that love him. We have put our faith in Christ and we've started a race. We started a journey. And there's a finish line. And we're not there yet. And at that finish line, there's, there's a crown of life that, that, that the Lord Jesus will give us. That he earned for us. By enduring the cross, dying in the place of sinners. There was no joy in the cross, only suffering. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And one of the things he accomplished was not only that he pleased the Father, but he made it possible that we as sinners can be forgiven that we can be right with him, and that we, instead of experiencing eternal death, can receive eternal life. And God is committed in our lives as Christians to helping us persevere until the end so that we can receive this crown of eternal life bought for us. What blessings are there for those who persevere under trial? who patiently endure it in expectant hope that God will deliver on his promises, the crown of eternal life. Now compare that uh, to the rich man who loves the world in verse 11. I mean, maybe you're here as a, as a non-Christian and you're saying, actually, this Christian life sounds very tough. I don't particularly fancy it. Well, if that's you, uh, uh, then look at verse 11. Oh, uh, Verse 10, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Well, so this is the man who uh, loves the world and just wants to make a lot of money and get all the toys 
And uh, James reminds them that, you know, if that's, if that's the plan, if that's the focus, I'm going to live to get all the goodies of this world and ignore God and reject God, then just, just remember that the glory of getting as much stuff as you've got, I mean, how long do you hold it on for? On, onto it for? A very short time. Like a wildflower. But it's there one moment, a week later, it's gone, it's scorched, it's away. I went to see the Margaret Thatcher movie um, recently, and it's a very poignant movie, and people don't like it because it, it shows Margaret Thatcher in her old age, and think, they think it's sort of, um, in a sense, it's a disgraceful thing. But I was, it, it has a sobering message as you see this woman who had such power, she was the prime minister, and yet failing in her old age. Well, you can reach the top but we will all eventually perish. You can accumulate a lot of stuff. You could become a billionaire. But you know what? We leave it all behind when we die. We live our life as a very short time between two periods of nakedness. Naked we come into the world, as Job says, and naked we will leave it. Do we really want to live loving this world that is so fleeting and will be gone and there'll be nothing? Or do we want to persevere, endure perhaps whatever suffering and scorn may come our way for being Christians, knowing that those who uh, persevere are blessed people who will receive the crown of life. Uh, Ron, Toes, Ron Taves is, uh, is a friend of mine in America. Uh, he was a member of the church I pastored uh, there. And uh, he was a successful businessman. Uh, he made and sold hi-fi equipment and, uh, in the 70s and 80s, and he did very well. In the early 80s, someone offered to buy his business, where uh, if he'd done the deal, he would have walked away as a millionaire. His partner uh, that he shared the business with said, no, I'll give it one more year, and we'll get even more money. Well, that one more year was a disastrous year. I won't catalog all that happened, but within a year, this very prosperous business just fell apart for all sorts of different reasons. And by the end of that other year, he was a millionaire in debt. He owed personally a million dollars. When it was prosperous, when it was doing well, he remembered uh, over a series of weeks praying to the Lord, Lord, I feel that my faith is superficial. Would you grow my faith? I want to know how precious you are. Would you do that? He prays that, and almost a year later, his life falls apart. He loses his business. He loses his home. He has nothing. He's, he, he owes a million dollars. His life fell apart, and Ron's self-confidence was utterly shattered. He had lots of business ideas. He was an American. He's always got plans to... Every one of his ideas failed. And it, and it just left him utterly, there was nothing left. And he remembers that there were days when his wife went out to work, and all he could think about doing was he'd go down to the basement, and these American houses have basement. He went to the lowest place in the house, and he got on his face before God, and he just prayed, or, you know, he was just praying, and he was just, just reading his Bible and praying, and he did that for weeks and months. And during that time, God started revealing to him more of his own sinfulness. 
he began to look back over his life and saw the little white lies that had gone on in his business life and became confronted with the fact that he was a liar. He began to look at, God just revealed more and more of his sinfulness and he repented of it and sought God's forgiveness. And this happened in wave after wave. And he came to see what a great sinner he was. And then he became, I suppose um, you shared that testimony, didn't you? You came to see in the cross how amazing was the grace of God in the light of your sin. Well, that's what happened to Ron. And during one time of repentance, he, he sort of found himself blurting out to God, if you, if you would give me a job, I will pay back all that money, God. I'll pay it all back so that no one will miss out. And he sort of fell about laughing, thought, hang on, this is crazy. I, I, mean, I, I can't get a job. How am I going to pay back a million dollars? Well, as the months went on, someone did take him on. And he was on a commission job. And it was an area that boomed. And he actually managed to repay the whole of his debt. And almost to the day when all the debt was paid, the, the boss called him in and said, look, your terms are far too favorable. We're going to cut this commission and you're going back onto regular salary. So he repaid all his debt. He was hoping the good times would keep rolling, but they didn't. He just got regular salary. And that was it. I, I've, I've compressed years of a very painful journey. Ron asked the Lord, to reveal to him more of his glory. And the Lord took his life apart. And he would say he was so glad that God did that. Although it was such a painful journey. This has been the testimony of many Christians. Here's the testimony of John Newton that he wrote in a hymn that was published in 1779. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Don't you think that? Oh, Lord, can you just fix my heart and do it? like that that's what John wanted fix my heart right now in a moment instead of this he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part yea more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe crossed all the fair designs I schemed blasted my goods or I think he means by his protections blasted my protections and laid me low Lord, why is this, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. God wants to give us united hearts that fear him and love him and that will cling to Christ until the end and receive the crown of life. But I want you to notice with me from James chapter 1 that this process of growing maturity is not automatic. See that phrase in verse 4? Perseverance must finish its work. 
I think it's a desire in all of us to escape difficulties, to run away from hardships, to evade our responsibilities, to there's temptations to deny our faith in Christ when it gets difficult. But here is a call to patient, steadfast endurance. Perseverance must finish its work. When testing trials come, we should not fear or run, but instead look to God that he would help us to keep trusting him through the trial. There is no intrinsic joy in suffering. Uh, we're not masochistic. There's no um, intrinsic joy in hardships and trials. And our natural response is fear, perplexity, anxiety, anger, and self-pity. But you know what? James wants us to do a different thing, doesn't he? What does he want us to do? Verse 2, consider it pure joy, or better translated, all joy. Consider it all joy. It isn't joyful, right? But consider it. As a joyful thing. Why? Why can I consider my trials as a joyful thing? Well, because I see that behind these difficult trials and circumstances, I have a sovereign and a loving God who's at work, even in the stresses, even in the pain, to bring wholeness to my soul, to bring healing in my divided condition. And because I see that that is his loving purpose... I can joyfully recognize that while others might be wanting to cause evil, God is bringing about good. And it requires a definite decision on our part. We can face our trials by a choice of constant grumbling, groaning, moaning. Um, or we can, in fact, embrace it as a God-given opportunity that will lead to our ultimate happiness and joy. I remember visiting a, a single woman at the age of 90 had just moved into a retirement home. She left a home she loved, and even more, she had to leave a garden that she loved. Uh, part of that visit, she was showing me all the pictures of her garden and the last harvest she had from the garden. She loved that garden. And I asked her how she was coping moving into this retirement home, and she said, well... I'm happy because I determined that I would be. She was going to count it joy. But what if we're struggling to view our personal circumstances in that way? Well, then we should follow verse 5. That's what verse 5 is about. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. It is the wisdom to see our difficulties as God's plan for our good. That's the wisdom that he's calling them to ask God for. Ask God to give you the wisdom to trust him, to trust he's got good purposes, even in the trials of our faith. You know, we may never see what it is that he's doing in this life, but he is in that work. Alec Motier, in his commentary, he writes this, Doctor, we might say, does the medicine have to be so nasty? Does the treatment have to be so severe? And he replies, don't you want to be better? So then don't you want to be like Jesus? Do we want to 
have the full enjoyment of our salvation? Do we want, when we reach heaven, to have our perceptions and our faculties so sharpened and sensitized that we'll really see his glory? Well, then there is no other way. Can I ask you to bow your heads? Have a time of personal reflection.